since all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, let me invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapter 33. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 27. We're going to be looking at the text a lot, and you'll be helped to have a copy of God's Word open. I wonder, are you ready? Are you ready for heaven? The much-beloved minister, J.C. Ryle, once wrote, Most men mo mo uh, hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we are on earth. Well, this morning, as we study Genesis 33, we see God's grace train and make Jacob ready for entering the promised land of Canaan. And as we look at this text, I pray that each one of us would taste the grace of God in this text and be trained and made ready for our entrance into the promised land of heaven. In the last few chapters of our study, we've been following Jacob's journey home. He had been exiled from his homeland. He had been enslaved in Laban's house. But God commanded him to return home to the promised land of Canaan. And on his way home, he had to face the wrath of Laban, whose house he was fleeing. He had to wrestle with God in the form of an angel. Uh, Jacob held on to God as he saw God face to face until God blessed him. And this encounter with the living God left Jacob with a lifelong limp. Now, in weakness, we learn in Genesis 33 that he has to face his brother Esau. Jacob, coming out of that wrestling match with God, he is definitely a changed and changing man. Uh, Jacob, he grasps the grace of God. Still, though Jacob has been delivered and saved by God, he has not been completely sanctified by God. Some old sins still rear their heads, their heads, their ugly heads in Jacob's life. Jacob has been made new, but he's not been made perfect. I wonder if you can relate. Have you been saved by God's grace? Sanctified in some measure, and yet on your journey home, find that you still struggle with sin. Here's the good news of Genesis 33. God still brings Jacob home to Canaan. God keeps his promises to Jacob. In the midst of this pilgrimage, God keeps his promises to bring him safely there. He is preparing Jacob. He's getting Jacob ready to receive the gift of the promised land. And think about what this would have communicated to the people of Israel, the audience who actually first received this book. We have to know what it meant for them if we're to understand what it means for us. The people of Israel were reading about Jacob's freedom from slavery in Laban's house and the journey to the promised land. They were learning that their pilgrimage was similar to Jacob's before them. They were learning that they have the same gracious God, the same promise-keeping God that Jacob had. So just as God was preparing Jacob to receive the promised land, so he was preparing the people of Israel 
to receive the promised land. Just as God taught Jacob what it meant to walk in grace, to limp, leaning on him. So he was teaching Israel to walk in his grace. And I wonder if you realize that that's what God is doing with you in your life. He is fitting you for heaven. He's getting you ready, even as you journey home to heaven. He's getting you ready for heaven. Beloved, that's what we learn from God's words today. Here's the sermon in a sentence. God's grace prepares you for home as he keeps his promises to bring you home. God's grace prepares you for home as he keeps his promises to bring you home. Christian, both are occurring in your life. You are being prepared and God is keeping his promises. We'll study Genesis 33 in three sections under three headings. God's grace brings genuine humility. God's grace brings real restoration. And thirdly, God's grace brings us home. I believe there's a fuller outline that you can find there in your bulletin. That might also help you follow along. But let's begin with our first point. God's grace brings genuine humility. Follow along, follow along as I read Genesis 33, just verses 1 to 4 for now. Genesis 33, verses 1 to 4. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. It's easy for us to forget that these verses come right on the heels of Jacob seeing God face to face. In Genesis 32, Jacob had been in an all-night wrestling match with the angel of the Lord. And there Jacob learned that he had to depend upon the Lord for deliverance. Before the Lord met him, Jacob had actually been preparing to meet his brother Esau. He had been preparing to face his red-hot anger because Jacob had actually deceived his father and stolen Esau's blessing. And that sent Esau into a murderous rage. That's why Jacob had to flee from home in Genesis 28. And as he went, God promised that he would bring him safely back home. And as we learned last week on his journey home, Jacob learned that Esau was sending 400 men to meet him. And as the first verse of this chapter opens, Jacob sees with his own eyes what he'd only previously heard with his ears, that Esau was still coming with 400 men to meet him. In Genesis 32, verses 13 to 23, we learn that this report left Jacob afraid and reaching for anything and everything to pacify and appease his brother's anger. Jacob sent 550 animals on ahead of him, hoping that that gift would assuage his anger. Jacob's servants were to say, as they, they brought these droves of animals to him, they were to say over and over again that Esau was Lord and that Jacob was his servant. But wealth cannot buy genuine humility. That's something that grace brings. And it's something that must be personally demonstrated. Jacob, he also sent his wives and children ahead of him as we learn back in Genesis 32. He was hoping to arouse sympathy from Esau. 
Jacob was depending upon anything and everything but God. He was depending upon his wit and wisdom, his strategy, his scheme, and his plan. He was depending upon his smooth words of calling Esau Lord and himself servant. He was depending upon his wealth. He was depending on women and children to take away Esau's anger and to secure his safety. Meeting with the Lord wasn't just an interruption in Jacob's journey. It was God's gracious preparation for Jacob's journey and his meeting with Esau. And as we'll see, it was God's preparation for really the rest of Jacob's life too. And our text reveals that Jacob, he really was a changed man. And look at verse three again. You see it there? He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. The previous verse mentions how he kind of organized his family to meet Esau. He seemed to place the those who were uppermost in his affections last. But notice there in verse 3, he went on before them. The previous night, he had actually sent them ahead. But now things have changed. and He's jumped out in the front. He's not going to allow them to be exposed to Esau's anger. He's going to take that first. This was a new morning. And Jacob was a new man. Jacob exposed himself to danger first. God's grace had made a change in him. And so he changed his plans. And this is really the grace of humility at work in Jacob's life. You see, pride seeks to protect your place, your pleasure, your prominence, and your position. But humility preserves the happiness, the holiness, and the health of others. And that's what Jacob is doing by setting himself out in front of his vulnerable family. Humility even honors others regardless of the honor that is due to you. Do you see how Jacob bows down to the ground to Esau seven times? In truth, Esau actually should have been the one bowing down to Jacob. When Isaac blessed Jacob in Genesis 27 verse 9, he said, let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Esau should have been bowing down to Jacob, he was the recipient of God's blessings. The blessings of salvation, they were going to come through Jacob's line. And being the recipient of God's promises, they could have tempted Jacob to pride. But his wrestling with the Lord at Peniel had humbled him. And that's what grace does. It humbles you because you see that you are worthy of eternal death. And yet God has delivered your life. Charles Simeon once said, we cannot have one spark of real humility till we are abased before God as guilty, helpless, and undone creatures who have no hope but in the tender mercy of God in Christ Jesus. Those who have received the gracious promises of God do not need to be honored on earth. God's people will receive honor in heaven all because of Jesus. And said, those who know God's grace can honor others around them. You know, this past week I saw a video clip of a, a young woman who had graduated from college. She actually ripped the microphone out of the hand of the person who was reading the names of people who were graduating. And she proclaimed to everyone there that this was her day. And that no one would take her moment. That she wanted all of the attention directed to her. And then she threw the mic down and stormed off. Pride 
take honor. Humility gives honor. Children, uh, youth, young adults, let me encourage you to think about this as you interact with your parents, as you interact with your, your siblings, your brothers and sisters, your classmates, your teammates. When you speak with them and when you speak about them, either in their presence or not in their presence, speak about them in ways that honor them. That if you're speaking to them, would encourage them and build them up. Whether young or old, we need to admit that we can take honor from others in a, in a multitude of ways. If you find yourself grasping for your place or your position that you've got to hold on to and protect, if you find yourself demanding pleasure, search your heart. Search your heart for the sin of pride. Pray for the grace of humility to give honor to others and place them ahead of yourselves. Pray for the grace to promote the happiness and holiness and health of others. And in the life of our church family here at Arlington Baptist Church, we, we need to remember what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. Paul said this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Brothers and sisters, let, let's pray that God would make us a, a humble church family. Pray that you and your fellow members would look around, consider the interests, the needs of others, and serve just as Jesus Christ served. He got under our burdens to lift us up. And may we have the same grace to, to do the same. Notice in, in verse 4 of our text in Genesis 33 how the grace of humility has helped to heal old wounds. Right? Esau, he, he runs to meet Jacob. He, he falls on his neck and he kisses him. This is a surprising, sweet reunion. The relationship between Jacob and Esau had been deeply broken. But grace and humility had placed Jacob in the right posture before his brother. Esau had seen Jacob arrive, humbly bowing before him. And in verses 5 to 7, he sees Jacob's family arrive. Read, read verses 5 to 7 now. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servant drew near. They and their the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down down. Group by group, the, the members of Jacob's family, they draw near, they bow down, and recognize that the family follows the lead of their leader. They, they follow the lead of their father and the household head. As Jacob approached Esau with humility, so his family approached Esau with humility. Brothers in Christ, do not underestimate the spiritual influence that by the grace of the Holy Spirit you may have on your family and household. Perhaps one of the most important graces you can teach your family through your words and through your works is the grace of humility. Beloved, you cultivate humility by remembering the greatness and the power of God that wrestled you out of slavery to sin. As our understanding of God and his glory grows big, we appropriately grow small. That's what's happening for Jacob. Did you, do you see how he answered Esau's question there in verse five when Esau asked, so who are these with you? 
Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Jacob didn't point to himself. He didn't point to the magic of mandrakes. Remember how one of his wives tried to use them to have children and increase her worth in Jacob's sight? No. Jacob points to the maker. Notice how Jacob describes these children. They are a gracious gift of God. That's why every Christian should celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade that happened a year or so ago. That's why every Christian should long for the abolition of abortion. Because God graciously gives children. They are a sign of the sovereign's kindness to sinners. And friend, if, if you have sinned against God by proudly rejecting his gracious gift of children, or any other gift from God for that matter, then you need to know that there's mercy and forgiveness and acceptance in Jesus Christ. There is welcome and acceptance in Jesus Christ. Admit that you've sinned against God. Accept the gift that God has graciously given in his own son, Jesus Christ. Acknowledge and believe that Jesus lived for you and died for you and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the first humility that God's grace brings, the humility of repentance toward God, confessing that you're a sinner and faith in Jesus Christ, confessing that, that you can't save yourself, but that Jesus can. God's grace, it brought about genuine humility in Jacob. God's grace also brings restoration. This is our second point. It's what we see in Genesis 33, verses 8 to 11. Since Jacob recognizes that God has been gracious to him, he can return a bounty of blessing that he actually stole from Esau. Follow along as I read verses 8 to 11 of Genesis 33. Beginning there in verse 8. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. In these verses, we see Esau restored to Jacob the status of brother or restore Jacob to the status of brother. And we see Jacob restore to Esau a portion of the blessing, or the bounty of the blessing that he actually stole from him. In, in verse 8, it becomes clear that while Jacob ran out in front of his family, he did not actually get out in front of the presents that he had sent ahead to Esau. And so Esau, he asks about this. What do you mean by all of these gifts that you, you sent my way? And do you see Jacob's answer there in verse 8? He says that he wants to find favor in Esau's sight. Jacob, he has had a history of deception, but he doesn't hide his intentions from Esau here. He honestly admits that he was hoping this gift would assuage Esau's anger. And up to this point in the passage, Jacob, he's only referred to himself as a servant. You can see that back in verse 5. But notice too in verse 8 how, how Jacob refers to Esau. He calls him my lord. But then Esau, do you see what he does in verse 9? He draws near to Jacob. We've already seen him kind of welcome Jacob, like a, the father actually received the prodigal son in Jesus' parable. Uh, the father actually did all the same things here, 
wept and fell on his neck of his long-lost son, here Esau, he identifies Jacob as his brother. And this is significant. Again and again, uh, by the servants that Jacob sent on ahead, Esau has been called Lord. Esau is my Lord. Esau is my Lord. Jacob is his servant. Jacob is his servant. Jacob's been presented as being beneath Esau. But do you see what Esau is? He actually raises Jacob up from being a servant to being a son in the same household, his brother. He's made equal. They're in the same family from the same father. What a gracious restoration from Esau. I mean, we, we live in a world where this rarely happens, doesn't it? Our world struggles to understand repentance and forgiveness and restoration. Today, uh, when someone sins against popularly held cultural beliefs, sometimes there's almost no possibility of restoration. No matter the amount of penance and contrition, such an individual will forever remain beneath a person of the people that they've offended. Friends, don't let this happen in your heart. Uh, don't let it happen in your marriage or in your parenting, your friendships, your relationships with others. When someone comes to you in genuine contrition and confession, restore them. When, when someone comes to you seeking forgiveness, don't hold their past sins against them. Don't punish them with silence. Don't punish them by keeping a record of wrongs. Yes, but you did this and this and this, and I'm still mad at you about that. Don't keep a record of wrongs. Is, is that how God has treated you in Jesus Christ? No. Because of Jesus and the atonement that he has made, your sins are forgiven. Remember Colossians chapter 2? Listen to these words from Paul, verses 13 and 14. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Do you recognize that's what God has done with you? He's canceled your debt. You don't owe him anymore. You can't owe him. Jesus has paid your debt. He's paid it all. And this is how we need to forgive as well. I mean, remember Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, where Paul says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Paul says, as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. Praise God that real forgiveness involves real restoration and reconciliation. And it is quite amazing that we see that demonstrated in Esau, of all people. Esau, we see here, he kind of resists Jacob's gift at first. He claims that he has enough, and really, he's not wrong. I mean, if these 400 men belong to him, then attached to all those men are likely women and children. Esau is a man of consequence. He, he's a household with influence over hundreds of households. God enriched Jacob, but Esau was rich in himself. And there's a danger there too. Jacob knew that God made him wealthy. Right? He ascribed to the gracious gift of God. But Esau believed that he was a self-made man. I mean, it's at least part of the reason why Esau resisted Jacob's offer. Uh, one commentator, Ian Duguid, rightly observed, what Esau saying to Jacob, in effect, is that God's blessing didn't matter all that much after all. He managed fine without it. Jacob, he grasped the grace of God. 
But Esau didn't. He didn't even understand God's common grace. He didn't understand that the words of James chapter 1, verse 17, every good, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. When you, you don't grasp God's grace's generosity, then you're not eager to receive more grace. That's also part of why Esau, the reason why Esau resists Jacob's gift. But Esau's resistance is matched by Jacob's insistence there in verses 10 and 11. This is not, this gift is not about Esau merely having enough. It's about bringing true reconciliation and restoration. When Jacob says, if I have found favor in your sight, he's saying, if the restoration and reconciliation is to be real, my brother, then I really want you to have this gift. I want to make this right. This shows Jacob really is a changed and changing man. Right? Previously, Jacob would scratch and claw for every last possession and penny. We saw that in his relationship with Laban in his household. But the Lord has changed Jacob from being a grasper to being a giver. Is that a change that God, in his grace, has worked in your heart and life? That the sinful and natural human tendency is to gather time and talent and treasure to ourselves. But when God, in his grace, saves us and changes us, we give those things away. In the middle of verse 10, Jacob utters a curious phrase. He says that seeing Esau's face is like seeing the face of God. I wonder what you make of that. I mean, nobody else in the Bible has seen the face of God and lived as Jacob has. Is, is Jacob exaggerating? I don't think so. I, I think he's drawing a parallel experience, his, a parallel experience to his wrestling with God. I mean, notice the arrangement of verses 10 and 11. Do you see the word please in verse 10? And do you see it again there at the beginning of verse 11? Jacob, he makes these two petitions for Esau to accept his present in verse 10, and to accept the blessing there in verse 11. Just as Jacob was insistent with God at Peniel, declaring, I will not let you go until you bless me. So Jacob is insistent with Esau in this gift. Jacob is saying to his brother, I will not let you go until you take this blessing. Jacob wants to return back a portion of the bounty and blessing that he stole from Esau. If I can put it somewhat provocatively, this was going to be an irresistible grace that Jacob was going to give Esau. In between the two pleases of verse 10, we have Jacob's reason why. You see that word for? Why must Esau accept this blessing? For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Jacob wants to have the same experience with Esau that he had with God at Peniel. God did not reject Jacob when he wrestled with him at Peniel. And Jacob does not want Esau to reject him here. God did not treat Jacob as his sins deserved at Peniel. And Jacob doesn't want Esau to treat him as his sins deserved here. Jacob wants God's acceptance of him to be mirrored in Esau's acceptance of him. Jacob wants to give this blessing to Esau because, as he says at the end of verse 11, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. You realize that both brothers said that phrase? Esau said, I have enough. In verse 9, Jacob says it here, I have enough. Verse 11, what's the difference between the two? Well, Jacob attributes his plenty to the sovereign God who has graciously dealt with him. Jacob speaks of God and his grace over and over again. But the glorious name of God and his generosity is never on Esau's lips. 
is, is God and his grace on, on your lips? Do you ascribe all of your blessings to God? Grace restores God to the center of our minds and our mouths. When we realize that God has dealt graciously with us, we tell others about him and what he has done. Jacob, he has powerfully urged Esau to receive this gift and blessing. And finally, there at the end of verse 11, we're, we're relieved to read that Esau, he took it, he accepted it. And with Esau's reception of the portion of the blessing that Jacob restored to him, it's beyond doubt that Esau has restored Jacob to the status of brother. God's grace brings genuine humility. God's grace brings real restoration. And God's grace brings us home. This is our third point. We find it in Genesis 33, verses 12 to 20. Follow along as I read Genesis 33, verses 12 to 20. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they're driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly. At the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Well, in these verses, we see that while God had made Jacob new, he had not made Jacob perfect. Uh, Jacob yet again slips back into his old ways of deceit. Uh, despite Jacob's deceit, God still accomplishes his own goal. God brings Jacob home to Canaan. Following the, the restoration, Esau, he, he generously invites Jacob to journey with him home to Seir. He even offers to lead the way. That's why he says there in verse 12, I will go ahead of you. But what's the problem with that? What's the problem with Jacob going with, with Esau? Well, the problem with that invitation is that if Jacob went with Esau, he would be disobeying the command of God. Back in Genesis chapter 31, verse 3, why don't you just turn over there. Genesis 31, verse 3, it's a chapter back or two. 31 verse 3, it's the beginning of Jacob's journey. We, we read this. Then the Lord Yahweh said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. Then skip down to verse 13. You see verse 13 of Genesis 31. God said again, now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. We'll flip back to chapter 33 again. Jacob, so we're thinking about this, you got to remember he is under a sovereign summons to go home. Seir was where Esau lived and it was outside of the promised land. It's nowhere near home. Home was in the other direction. Jacob should have been upfront and honest with his brother Esau about his divinely determined destination. But sadly, he falls back into depending upon his old deceitful schemes. In verses 13 and 14, instead of being out in front 
of the children and the cattle, he actually makes them the problem. You see that? He almost shames them for being sickly and slow. Jacob argues that if they're driven hard, even for just one day, they'll die. That seems well short of the truth. And it's at least an exaggeration of the truth. I mean, think about it. They've come out of Laban's house. They've already made a very lengthy journey. And even if this is true, it's not the real reason that Jacob needs to say, no, I can't go. Observe how one lie leads to another, demands another. In verse 14, Jacob declares that he will meet Esau in Seir. Uh, what's the phrase that's common around Washington, D.C.? Isn't it that the, uh, the cover-up is almost always worse than the crime? Well, I think that seems to be the case here. I mean, Esau, in verse 15, generously offers even to leave some men to help Jacob. But Jacob refuses again. And some commentators really want to cut Jacob all kinds of slack here. That Just to be clear, I'm not going to cut him. But they'll say things like, uh, Jacob's actions betray continuing uncertainty about Esau's feelings toward him. Or, apparently, Jacob still does not fully trust Esau and has no intention of following him to Seir. I think that that's far too generous to Jacob. Distrust is no excuse for deceit. It's not a faithful way of handling uncertainty. Uh, what Jacob should have said is this. Instead of depending upon a lie to keep him safe, he should have said, Brother, I love you. I am so grateful to God that we have been reconciled and restored. Here's the thing. God has commanded me to go to Canaan. I can't go with you to see But would you like to go with me to Canaan? And that's the land that God promised to give to our father and grandfather and to me. Would you like to join me in enjoying God's blessings in Canaan? That's not what Jacob said, was it? No, he deceitfully pretended to be on his way to Seir only to turn and head to Succoth. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22 says this, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Telling the truth is an act of faith in God. I mean, you cannot depend upon deceit to defend you. Telling the truth, even, even to those you are uncertain about, those who might be your enemies, those who might do you harm, is the right and righteous thing to do. I wonder what you want for your lips. Do you want lips that last forever? Not because of some lip balm that's out there. Do you want lips that last forever? Proverbs chapter 12, verse 19 says this, truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. A love of the truth is not just a matter for the Old Testament people of God. A love of the truth should be evident in our lives too. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25, we read, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The truth is actually what we owe to each other. If we represent the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, then we must be a people who tell the truth. Telling the truth is an act of faith in God. Because when you tell the truth, you are trusting God with your safety and security. Instead of hiding behind lying words, we tell the truth and hide behind the one true and living God. Jacob was taking his safety and his security back into his own hands. And as we're seeing, as Jacob has been made new, he clearly hasn't been made 
perfect. And you need to understand that no one will reach perfection until glory. And this is not just true for Jacob, it's true for us too. We have our own sinful proclivities that even after salvation in Jesus Christ, we will struggle with and we'll struggle with until we finally get home to heaven. And God's calling upon us is to repent when he exposes those sins in our lives and to believe upon him for the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus. And I think we should learn from Jacob here. Though he sinned and deceived Esau, he still determines to obey the command of God. Right? In verses 70 to 20, we see that Jacob, he kept making his way home to Canaan. Jacob's journey was mixed with sin and obedience. Your journey will be mixed, sadly, with sin, but by God's grace, obedience too. Well, one thing you, your journey must be marked by is a determination to obey the command of God. I mean, the people of God are going home. We obey his commands along the way, sometimes failingly. Still, Moses, the, the author of Genesis, he makes it unmistakably clear that, that Jacob and Esau part ways, right? They, they head in different destinations, and Moses wants us to get that. Throughout the chapter, Moses has even used language that echoes the episode of when Abraham and Lot parted ways. So in, in Genesis 13, when Lot lifted up his eyes, he chose Sodom. And then what happened? God told Abraham to lift up his eyes, and he gave him the promised land. And here in Genesis 33, we, we have both men actually lifting up their eyes, verses 1 and 5, and they're both going their separate ways. It's a similar parting as Lot and Abraham. When Jacob arrives in Succoth, we, we learn there in verse 17 that he, he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. The word for um, Succoth simply means booth or, or hut or thicket. Um, and this, this would have resonated with the people who were first receiving this book of Genesis, right? The people of Israel, they're in the wilderness, they're on their way home to Canaan. And do you remember the first stop that the people of Israel made on their way out of Egypt? In Exodus chapter 12, verse 27, we learn that it was Succoth. Later, uh, they too built booths at different points along their journey through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And do you remember what the whole goal of that exodus was, that leaving of Pharaoh's house was? Why did God want to call his people out of Egypt? Well, according to Exodus 3, verses 13 to 22, we learn that God called his people up out of Egypt to be faithful to his promises, to give them a land so they might serve and worship God and offer sacrifices to God. And with that in mind, with the goal of calling the people of Israel out of Egypt to give them the land that God promised, to call them into God's service, to give them worship and sacrifices. Look at verses 18 to 20 again. Read those verses again. And Jacob came, notice that word, safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. See, God freed Jacob from slavery in Laban's house. And though Laban had chased him, and though he faced the threat of Esau, God prepared Jacob. He protected Jacob throughout the whole course of his journey, and he brought him safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the promised land of Canaan. Jacob entered the promised land of Canaan. Do you see what Moses is teaching the people of Israel who are not yet in Canaan themselves? Through the story of Jacob, he's teaching Israel that God will bring them safely into the land of Canaan. He's teaching them that he, in his grace, 
brings us home. <clears throat> like Jacob was enslaved in Laban's house, right? The people of Israel, they were enslaved in the house of Pharaoh. Like Jacob fled from Laban's house and was pursued by Laban. So the people of Israel left Egypt and they were pursued by Pharaoh and cornered the Red Sea. And God delivered them. And like Jacob faced Esau on his journey home to Canaan, so Israel faced the nation of Edom, the descendants of Esau, on their journey home to Canaan. And like Jacob safely came into the promised land, so too the people of Israel would safely come into the promised land. Just like God kept his gracious promises to Jacob, who, remember, is now named Israel, God will keep his gracious promises to the nation of Israel too. Though they would sin and struggle along the way, just think of the incident of the golden calf, right? Though they would sin and struggle along the way, they would make it home, not because of their strength, not because of any practice of deceit or schemes that they might have, but because God made a loving promise. And God's promises will not fail because he can never fail. Christian, you are going to make it home too. And God is preparing you for that arrival. And when you get home, you will do what Jacob does as he enters the land. You will worship. Did you see that in verse 20, what Jacob did? He erected an altar and he called it El Elohe Israel. There's probably a footnote there in your Bible that explains what that phrase means. It means God, the God of Israel. Jacob is worshiping Yahweh. He's acknowledging that God has changed his name and changed his life. Jacob is not only claiming the covenant God as his God, but he's worshiping Yahweh. Jacob is doing what Abraham actually did before him. When Abraham recognized that God was faithful to his promises, Abraham built altars and worshiped Yahweh. Jacob is worshiping the God who promised him way back in Genesis 28, verse 15, that I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I mean, do those words not sound familiar to us? Like the words of Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm with you and I will not leave you. Jacob, he worships the faithful God who's been gracious to him his whole life long. Jacob worships the God who brought him into the land of Canaan, just as he promised. If you are to enter heaven, if you are to enter the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, as it was called in the passage that we read earlier in the service, then it won't be because of your work, but because of Jesus' work. Friend, do you realize that Jesus walked the same path as Jacob in the nation of Israel? Jesus lived under the commands of God, and yet, unlike Israel and unlike Jacob before him, Jesus never sinned. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, the apostle Peter tells us this about Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. You see, because Jesus was sinless, and because Jesus died for sinners, bearing the wrath of God against their sin, paying their debt, and because Jesus got up from the dead on the third day, and because Jesus ascended into heaven, he can bring all who turn from their sin and trust in him home to heaven. And the first step of preparation on your path home to heaven is to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus. God may have other steps for you to take as he teaches and trains you for glory. But you are not even on the path home until you're humbled before him because of your sin. Until you recognize that you are in danger of hell and facing God's eternal wrath against your sin. 
until you are restored because of Jesus and his forgiveness and grace. Friend, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, the same God of Jacob, the God who promised Jacob that he would enter the land, the same God who kept all of his promises to Jacob, will see to it that all of his people enter the promised land of heaven. Listen to the words of Jesus himself from John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. Jesus said this, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the future of those who believe and trust in Jesus. Eternal life and glory with Jesus. Friend, turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. And if you want to know more about what that means, how you might answer Jesus' call today, come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news in Jesus Christ. Talk with a friend or the family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about than what it means to find reconciliation, restoration in Jesus Christ and how he will bring you all the way home. And as we conclude, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you with the truth that just as this chapter ends with Jacob in worship, so that will be your end too. Your story ends with the never-ending worship of the king who sought you and bought you in his redeeming blood. Welcome the gracious training that the Lord has for you on your journey, the, the gracious training of learning genuine humility, the, the gracious training of learning to confess your sin like Jacob, the gracious training of learning to seek forgiveness from others, the gracious training of being restored to Jesus and learning to restore others like Jesus. Don't despise what God's grace is training in you or how he is preparing you for heaven. He is training you in his grace so that you'll be happy in Jesus, and you'll actually enjoy heaven when you get there. God is getting you ready for heaven. As George Swinnick once said, heaven must be in you before you are in heaven. And once you are home, this will be your song. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this assurance from your word that we will indeed make it home to heaven all because of your grace. You are leading us all along the way. Father, help us to walk by faith, to speak the truth, to be reconciled to those whom we've sinned against, and to offer reconciliation to those who've sinned against us. Father, we pray and ask that we would find your grace in Jesus Christ, your forgiveness this morning, sweet. And we pray that it would be our comfort until we reach glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.